Disclaimer. The views, information, or opinions discussed in this UCC podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the UCLA University Catholic Center and its staff. If you have any questions or comments concerning the information, leave a comment below or email us at catholicconvos at gmail.com. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. From the belief that I have to earn your love. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear that I am unlovable. Deliver me, Jesus. From the false security that I have what it takes. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear that trusting you will leave me more destitute. Deliver me, Jesus. From all suspicion of your words and promises. Deliver me, Jesus. From the rebellion against childlike dependency on you. Deliver me, Jesus. From refusals and reluctances in accepting your will. Deliver me, Jesus. From anxiety about the future. Deliver me, Jesus. From resentment or excessive preoccupation with the past. Deliver me, Jesus. From restless self-seeking in the present moment. Deliver me, Jesus. From disbelief in your love and your presence. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being asked to give more than I have. Deliver me, Jesus. From the belief that my life has no meaning or worth. Deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of what love demands. Deliver me, Jesus. From discouragement. Deliver me, Jesus. That you are continually holding me, sustaining me, loving me. Jesus, I trust in you. That your love goes deeper than my sins and failings and transforms me. Jesus, I trust in you. That not knowing what tomorrow brings is an invitation to lean on you. Jesus, I trust in you. That you are with me in my suffering. Jesus, I trust in you. That my suffering united to your own will bear fruit in this life and the next. Jesus, I trust in you. That you will not leave me orphan that you are present in your church. Jesus, I trust in you. That your plan is better than anything else. Jesus, I trust in you. That you always hear me and in your goodness always respond to me. Jesus, I trust in you. That you give me the grace to accept forgiveness and to forgive others. Jesus, I trust in you. That you give me all the strength I need for what is asked. Jesus, I trust in you. That my life is a gift. Jesus, I trust in you. That you will teach me to trust you. Jesus, I trust in you. That you are my Lord and my God. Jesus, I trust in you. That I am your beloved one. Jesus, I trust in you. In your most holy name, we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Now Jesus and his disciples set out for the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Along the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They said in reply, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter said to him in reply, You are the Messiah. Then he warned them not to tell anyone about him. The first prediction of the Passion. 
he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke this openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. At this he turned around, and looking at the disciples, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking as God does, but as human beings do. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and that of the gospel will save it. What profit is there for one man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What could one give in exchange for his life? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this faithless and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Welcome back to another episode of the UCC Pod. Woo! <laughs> I have here the biggest Lakers fan in the entire world. <laughs> he is also, this is like super, super true. He is the most intelligent philosopher. He's going to be the next Aristotle. I, I kid you not. <laughs> he, if you ever have a conversation <laughs> with him, I feel like your IQ goes up 200 points. Just because he has so many wise things to say. And he just has so many wonderful comments to give. Every time that you're in his presence, I always feel that you are, you, you feel such a holy presence. And I always admire this person just because he's, he, we, we've been um, to, at the UCC for the last three years. He's graduated oh. early, big yeah. brain. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I definitely, I definitely do miss him. But I will always remember the, the conversations that we've had. And the times that I let you down and pick up basketball games. Oh, no. <laughs> trash. But yes. Um, <laughs> without further ado, I introduce you, former student leader, philosopher extraordinaire, <laughs> biggest brain in all of the UCC, Omar. Let's oh, gosh. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jason, for that gracious introduction. Wow. Oh, you're so awesome, bro. I'm just excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited that you are here and not watching the Lakers game as it is right now. Bro, honestly, thank you so much for the sacrifice. Yeah. I know that currently as we're recording right now, this will probably be published when, you know, the Clippers beat the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals oh. and all that stuff. So, ah! Yikes. I don't know. I don't, we'll see. We'll see. I hope that I'm just like, after the date of publishing, I, I don't regret my words, but you know. Yeah. Um, Lakers are doing well right now, I think, in the Blazers. Yeah. Blazers are looking a little bit lost. It is not yeah. Dame time. It's You know what? It's Kobe time, honestly. Kobe time. Kobe day, yes. Kobe day, A24. They're inspired. Yes, yes, yes. Before we get into anything, okay. how did you get into Lakers basketball or basketball in general? You know, I actually have a very vivid memory of this. I must have been like three or four years old, and I remember in my first home, walking into the living room and my mom was watching the Lakers and I still remember who they were playing. They were playing the Seattle Supersonics in the Kobe <laughs> and Shaq era. Yeah, the Seattle Supersonics when they were a thing, you know, in the NBA before Seattle went to Oklahoma City, right? Was KD and, there? No, at that time he wouldn't have been. I think Ray Allen was there actually at the time, oh. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I just remember watching that and I've, I've been hooked since. I've been having Kobe jerseys, grew up a Laker fan. and 
yeah, I just been a Laker fan all my life ever since then. For sure. And definitely like this year holds a very special, special moment for the Lakers. Their first time back in the playoffs uh, since six years. And especially yeah. during the tragic year uh, with Kobe Bryant and definitely. nine other passengers, one including her, his own daughter, Gianna Prassing. Yeah. I think this is like a very special year for the Lakers. A lot to think about for sure. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all props to Kobe and all the other passengers. Definitely prayers up for them always. Of course. Them and their families. It's such a tragedy. It honestly is. I think that there's so many things that you really don't think about until it just hits you, life hits you. So my mentality is like not every day is guaranteed. You have to earn it, honestly. It's a blessing Mm -hmm. for every day that you're a part of this world. And so very grateful. I mean, (laughs) the entire year 2020 has taught me just how precious life is and how we, I think, have a responsibility to uphold others to lift others up and everything and I know that that's something that you do in your work Mm -hmm. I know that's what you've done as a student leader for the UCC and the other things that you've done as your president of the Thomasic Institute too right yes I was bro tell me about these years yeah tell me about these experiences, bro yeah so with the Thomasic Institute you know it's a great organization that really strives to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition within the Catholic Church and I was fortunate enough to kind of be the the lead of our chapter at UCLA and we just try to bring some prominent speakers to give us some clarity on on different topics such as you know free will happiness through friendship unjust laws and what Aquinas has to say about that and you know just hopefully build some of that community and have those discussions that you know are sometimes tough to find and have at a public university like UCLA you know because mm-hmm. we don't you know maybe at a Catholic university you'll you'll probably engage with more people that are willing to talk about those topics but you know we were fortunate at least to have TI at UCLA to kind of help do that aside from the Catholic Center which is obviously a great place to go and discuss your faith it was a great experience all in all got to meet great speakers have lunch with them or dinner afterwards so yeah fabulous wouldn't trade it I went to one of the talks I think wasn't it Edward Fazer oh yes Fazer that was actually our last TI talk we had others lined up but you know quarantine had other plans yeah I, I love that talk though. I was I was really sad that I couldn't stay for the whole talk because I had an event afterwards. But my goodness, it was such a such a big brain talk. There were so many <laughs> good things that he said, so many nuggets of truth yeah. that he just dropped. And so I'm just very excited to see where the TI Institute goes in the UCC now. In addition to just making those contributions, you've made an earlier contribution being like an SL, right? I think you were, what right. were you, EFD? EFD, yeah. Education, faith development. Nice, nice, nice. Yo, how was that? Bro, that one was, it was such a great experience. Just being able to gather together in fellowship, you know, with a group of UCCers every week and, you know, dive into scripture through the grace of the Holy Spirit, really just hear some really great insights on what the scriptures meant and like how to put them into practice in our daily lives. But yeah, it's just so amazing how like God can bring us together through scripture, you know, people that can be so different in many ways. I mean, yes, we're all UCLA students, but we come from diverse backgrounds and places. And, you know, for for the Lord to be able to bring us together and really allow us to connect despite all these differences is something that like, I continue to be like amazed by. Form friendships with people that you don't think you would have formed friendships with, you know, it's like, the Jews and the Gentiles in a certain sense. Maybe not that dramatic, you know, but um, it was great. And just being able to give back to the community that gave so much to me my first year at UCLA, it, it really made a huge difference and I just wanted to give back. For sure. What are some of the things that you learned about being an EFD and what are some what is some wisdom that you think you might want to impart on me and my fellow SLs oh, yeah. this year? <laughs> yeah, again, the importance of community and just authentic Catholic relationships and just even outside of your Catholic friendships, you know, friendships that uplift you and 
like just how important it is to be able to have conversations about like your daily life and and be able to continue to grow together but i think one of the things that i did learn from sl life is just how fulfilling and life-giving service is mm. i tend to think you know we get filled up like if someone fills up our gas tank but sometimes the lord is just so great that by serving others we we're filled up you know and of course through prayer and his grace to be able to serve others but there's nothing like being able to put in the work and through the grace of god being able to contribute in some way shape or form to the spiritual life of, of the community and and to see the fruits of it all and for me being able to see the sls this year who are our successors right and then you know to see now another year and you know seeing you as a sl and your team i'm like oh my gosh the community continues to grow and it, I'm, I'm just really excited for you guys i think the main thing i would say to you guys is just communicate as a team be there for each other and yeah just support each other i know you guys have your specific like committees but i think what makes a team really strong is you know the support that you give outside of your own committee as well i know that that was a big thing for us so yeah i mean that's what i would say and i know you guys will do great so many amazing people on there and yeah i'm just excited to hear about all about it because i'm going to be best believe i'm going to be keeping up with what, whatever's going on with the ucc oh for sure for sure i mean there's definitely uh, things that we have in store. Uh, we haven't officially met with the staff yet, so we'll basically iron things out over a retreat, right? But I'm excited for a retreat that's going to happen. I'm excited to get through the readings that Father Mark wants us to do. So, oh, yeah. and I'm and I'm just continuing to just like be excited for other opportunities that other schools have offering as well. Because oh man, I think like yeah, for sure, I would say that this situation has been really really abysmal honestly. And I know that this has been abysmal on so many different levels. The silver linings would be that I can now communicate from other people in different universities, right? And that's never been done before. And so, yeah, Yeah. definitely keep on the lookout for that. You're always going to be welcome to attend. So yeah, come through prayer prayer service. Yeah, rosary. But yeah, on that point, bro, you're so right. Like there's just so much opportunity and like, I guess, innovation in the church happening in the church right now and i think in college campus ministry i'm really excited to see what happens because as you're mentioning now you have like it's almost as if before we weren't thinking like hey wouldn't it be a good idea to actually like go and engage like intercollegiately right with other universities and stuff i think we always kind of had this idea but like it was kind of like uh well we have to plan here at you know at home base and now it's like well there's nothing different about planning for ucla specific event right because everyone's invited to this virtual event and you don't have to be at ucla to attend the ucla event you know what i mean you don't, have to, you don't have to be a ucla student so that is so that's, that's so exciting. true i'm excited to see what i think us as collegiate catholics come up with because there's been talks of hey let's have symposiums let's have workshops let's have a minecraft server for right. all of us discord ca- I, I Catholics. Yeah, catholics. That's, yeah yeah that's awesome there's so many ways to be innovative during this time and so i'm really glad to see the spirit moving in so many people and then people sharing different resources i remember so episode 15 which is ibrevery um the guy uh, steven right. talked about ibrevery which is an amazing prayer app mm-hmm. that maybe not all people know about and maybe this is a time to take, okay, let's, I want to do morning prayer, night prayer, right. or I want to do even more, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's so beautiful that, you know, we're able to find a community that wants to do that with us. And so I'm excited to see what's, what's been going on. I know that you are currently, you are a graduate of UCLA. I do want to talk about the, what you've learned at UCLA before we talk about your post-grad life. What was your major at UCLA? So I was a philosophy major. Originally, I intended to double major in philosophy and study of religion, but I ended up just pursuing the minor in study of religion. So philosophy major, religion minor. Nice, nice, nice. Did you have Dr. Ronald Rune? I did. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, religion year. in 40? Or... Yes, sir. 
<laughs> Christianity's East and West. I love that class. I love. That's great. Yeah, I love learning how little I know about Orthodox, like the Eastern yeah. Orthodox. Of my, oh. But it's such a beautiful religion, honestly. It is. And then they have they have actually a really beautiful understanding of the Trinity. I enjoyed reading about. Yeah. They're also, I would say they're very mystical in that sense, you know. I think Catholics sometimes take some of the mysteries of the, of the faith slightly further into like just investigating them and trying to understand them. And of course, we'll never fully understand them, you know, until course, the next yeah. life. And over time, we'll probably gain a little bit more knowledge through the grace of God. But yeah, it's awesome. And then I also enjoyed learning how much I or understanding how much I didn't know about church history and like all the councils and stuff. Because I didn't grow up in a Catholic school, right? So I K through 12 public school. And so I was like, wow, like so much church history. <laughs> so yeah, and Bruno's great at getting through it, you know, in a very concise way. Because we, I think that was like the first three weeks of the course. Like, could you imagine like church history in three weeks? Yeah, that is, like, that, what a yeah, tall that, task, that is you know? wild. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. I, I loved it because it was definitely, as somebody who has went private school, getting some of her education, it was a review, but in a sense, it was also a master class. It was just like, oh my goodness, I didn't know about that, right? And I thought I had yeah. a good religious education. So to anyone listening, this is not a, you should, this is a, you must take religion and 40 with Professor Brune. I honestly yeah, I think that it really enhances your understanding of the Catholic faith and, and then through the traditions, through history, but also the understanding about the different uh, Christian denominations and also the Eastern Orthodox religion as well, which mm -hmm. also enhances your faith as well. I learned a lot about Mary <laughs> through, yeah. through that class alone and uh -huh. through the grace of God, UCLA was able to offer like this class and to have this professor. Yeah, really a privilege, especially at a public university, you know, and it wasn't someone that was just like partial about it. You know, he, he was really enthusiastic about teaching the course and just did a really great job. Did you go to his church? I did, St. Sophia's. It's a beautiful cathedral. It is, yeah. Oh my goodness, very ornate, you know, gold. They're very big on that, and you know, and icons as well, like saints all over the walls. It was really beautiful. And like gates at the front, like to enter into the altar. Yes. Beautiful. It was amazing. I, I've never realized how long I could stand until I went <laughs> to, to the cathedral. Yeah. And then I didn't understand more than half of the words, but it was so beautiful just the way <laughs> the divine liturgy was. So I wanted to also touch upon the main focus of what you were studying philosophy. What was studying mm -hmm. philosophy like at UCLA? It was great. Honestly, going in, I didn't have a great idea of what philosophy was man like i i, I had like heard from priests right like okay because i had discerned you know priesthood i think as catholic men we kind of have a, a duty or maybe even an obligation to like, at least think about it right and so i understood all i knew was like all right philosophy then theology and that's how, and then you go into like priestly specific studies right so i was like okay well can't go to a catholic school too expensive let's go <laughs> to a, so usually it was my dream public school so went there and yeah, that's where I really began to like learn how to, how to think, how to understand complex arguments, be able to pick them apart into pieces, see how it comes together into a coherent argument. And then also learning to like be charitable and like really listen. Because I think one of the challenges in philosophy, that, and I see this across like all the students, specifically non-majors, is being charitable and really trying to understand what the other philosopher is, is saying. And when you reconstruct their argument to almost in a sense, make it, try to make it as strong as possible. So if you're going to refute it, you're refuting the best version of the argument. And it can be really hard sometimes because we want to anticipate like where we think it's going. And sometimes they're not saying what we think they're going to say. And so, yeah, 
just a lot of attention to detail and careful reading and that's just it's really great too because you know when you're having a conversation with someone it improves your listening skills too because you're you're in your head you're kind of like trying to recreate what they're saying like okay like is this what you're saying and yeah i found it like that's a practical skill that i've gotten from philosophy just careful like attentiveness to like whatever someone's writing or even just speaking yeah so it's been great in that sense i wish we would have read more catholic philosophers could have read more more aquinas unfortunately we didn't read very much like you get to read uh, any catholic philosophers very few aquinas augustine we read a couple like early christian philosophers we read some protestant theologians but most of the time it would be me having to go outside and find some sources like i read paul Tillich, who's a protestant theologian for my moral responsibility and free will class and i actually was able to like apply some of that into the class which is cool no typically we don't come across very many that's definitely a shame because there's so many good catholic philosophers out there mm-hmm. there's so many good christian philosophers out there and yeah i think that that's definitely one of the things that i guess people view it's like philosophy could be very secular in a sense. So props mm-hmm. to you, man, honestly, for like taking on the challenge. Another misconstruction of philosophy that I always hear is like, oh, you know, philosophy is an easy measure. But I have to say, <laughs> I'm, to refute that, one of my my friends, really, really smart kid, CS, took philosophy, probably like was one of the grades that he, he tanked at like UCLA. Philosophy yeah. is so hard. It is such a hard major. You really have to critically think mm-hmm. and if you come in thinking that, oh, this is easy, I know how to think, you actually really don't. Because I feel like the way you think, the way you approach things, like you've kind of alluded to in philosophy is way different than how we normally Very. think. Right? We always want to be in the arguments. We're always used to ad hominems, especially mm-hmm. with what's been going right. on in the media. We're always... In politics, especially, you see a lot of ad hominem. It's toxic, honestly. That's like very mm-hmm. contra to what's going on in philosophy where you really have to critically think when you mm-hmm. really have to try to understand, like you said, the other person's point of view. And then if it doesn't go that way, then oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah, you anticipating it is like... Mm-hmm. Maybe you've heard of some of these talks before and uh, if you want to try to dispute it as well, feel free yeah. to be my guest. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of ad hominem or like character attacks, right? So I think there's certain, like when you begin to read an argument, you'll see one thing and you'll start to think, oh, I associate this kind of argument or at least this statement or, or premise of an argument uh, with this group of people. And right. And then now you begin to reason to like the end of their argument and like that they think this one way. And like, I think you have to step back and, and really read it for what they're saying. And I think uh, one thing that I do see a lot of people struggle with in philosophy is they want to do like a counterfactual. So like if I tell you a premise in an argument and I, and I make a conclusion, let's say I'm just arguing that the Lakers are better than the Clippers, right? Let's just say I gave you a series of arguments. I won't go into it now, right? And let's just say one of the reasons is like they have more championships, right? And you're like, well, no, the Clippers are better than the Lakers. And you cite like a completely different reason, like, and they're better than the Lakers because they decorate their arena better. And it's like, hold on, wait a minute. I, I never said anything about their arena being better. Are you going to respond to like the championship concern? Because that's what I'm bringing up, right? And so in a philosophy paper, you want to address the specific points. And you can't just say, hey, the, the conclusion is false. Even if we know it to be false. And this is how you get good practice, I think. You argue for a false conclusion, something you know to be obviously false. And then you go and you pick apart the premises. And you say like, okay, how do we get here? Right? And if you're able to do that and really understand where the argument went wrong, when you actually get a good argument that argues for what might be a probable conclusion, right? At least at first sight, you'll have built this skill to be able to pick apart the structure. 
and really see like, hey, does this follow from that? And I found that to be like really helpful for me. I feel like that's such a, I could be wrong, so definitely correct me, a Thomistic methodology, or at least that's how Thomas Aquinas definitely attacked his points, right? He always had really good counterpoints, but that's because he used the false conclusions that that he thought up himself Mm -hmm. and then he basically said all right these are the reasons why i think that is to be true and then he comes up with like his actual truth like well actually these things are yeah i think that's beautiful what do you feel like your style is i would say i try my best to kind of mirror aquinas in some sense you know be able to anticipate the different objections to like an argument and really take a look at each each of them and be like okay well you know how do they get here right so like Aquinas in in the Summa basically you know he'll have this question and the article will be like the specific portion of the question that he wants to consider and he'll start off by listing okay some say this some say this and he'll like list that off and then he'll be like oh to the contrary this like Augustine on this matter says like the kingdom of God is best when the state is like ruled under like a Christian ruler, for example. Mm-hmm. And then he'll make his argument, right? His argument without the objections. And then he'll respond to the objections. It really just depends on like the paper that you're writing. If I'm making an argument, I gotta have some objections in there. Like my, my own argument, what I wanna present, and then what someone would respond. Like I try to anticipate what someone would, would say or what someone would try to attack in my own argument and then respond to that. Yeah, that's kind of how I go about it. There's some papers too, where you're just trying to reconstruct the argument of like a particular philosopher. And in that case, you really just gotta see, that's when you really gotta understand like where things fit together, right? How How is the argument being put together? Because sometimes you can actually put the argument together better than they can. Uh, and that's when you've really understood the argument, right? And if you've right. really understood it that well, when you get to the point of wanting to disagree with the conclusion, your objections are going to be so solid. That's kind of what I try to do. Do you feel like some philosophers try to use big words in order to just like hype themselves up? In reality, their argument is just completely garbage. Have you seen that? Or do you feel like a lot of the philosophers yeah. that you've read really, really has a good understanding on the syntax and the argument and the premises? You'll see a little bit of everything, but I think you're definitely right that there's some philosophers that kind of just put a lot of fluff and big words. And there's also philosophers who will are, who are great at rhetoric. And so a lot of what you see now actually is a lot of in modern politics and debate and arguments is really solid, like people that know and understand rhetoric really well. Right. And so with rhetoric, you know, your ethos, pathos, logos, right. You're using all those. So, you know, you appeal to like emotion, right. You appeal to like character and like, I mean, what do we do when we get presidential candidates? We're like pulling up all these things from their past and like kind of diminishing them and trying to like do all these things. But I think in philosophy, it's really just logic, you know, in a certain sense, you you don't think about who is arguing unless for context, you know, you really need to know. But for the most part, no, whatever's on paper is what you are, is what you have. Another thing is the best philosophers that I've seen write clearly. And, the, and you know, as an undergrad in every class, they teach you like, hey, don't use big words, simple, short sentences. Yes. And I think the beauty of it, that is that, hey, if you're writing in simple, short sentences, it actually forces you to understand the material a lot better. Thank God for Professor Tyler Burge. It's a shame because I had him in my last quarter at UCLA. Had I took in his course, in my first quarter, I think I would have been, my growth as a writer in philosophy would have been so much higher, like exponentially better. Wow. Um, because what he did, and this I'd never considered this before, and it paid off tremendously, was he literally forced us in our papers to write sentences that were 16 words or shorter. What? Yeah. And I was like, what? Like, are you kidding me? Like, how am I going to do this? And what it made me do was, 
sit with all the ideas and like really think like, oh my gosh, like how do I want to say this? And I began to think a lot more on like, how am I going to argue this? How am I going to say this? What do I need to leave out? What am I putting too much effort into, I guess, or like too much wasting time in? And bro, I just began to write so much more clear. Like my thoughts were just so much more organized. My papers flowed so much better. So like if I have advice to anyone writing philosophy papers, like try that out. Maybe he said some classes he tries 24, but put yourself a limit and don't go over it. And like, you'll find that you write a lot better, clearer. And I I found that it was a lot easier to like structure my papers because that was my main thing. I thought I had great ideas. And sometimes I would go speak to my professors and I'm like, yeah, like that's, that's what I said. But I, and they're like, well, that's not what you put on paper, right? Like I'd get my grade back and I talk to them, well, this is what I meant. And they're like, oh yeah, but it was either like ambiguous here or you kind of were beating around the bush here. This sentence didn't need to be here and it took away from the clarity of your paper, stuff like that. I am the type of person that is 30 words minimum <laughs> each sentence. Yeah. So it's, I'm really bad. I definitely ramble on a lot. So which is why I probably got a, not a not a great writing too great, but that is besides the point. That's such solid advice. I definitely yeah. feel like could summarize or give a point in 16 words or less, then I do feel like you truly grasp it. You truly understand it. Brevity is clarity. Yeah, and it helps to pull apart ideas because sometimes we want to put two ideas together that don't belong. And it'll also make your, your paragraph shorter because once you move on to the next idea, it's another paragraph. That really helps out a, a ton. I totally recommend that for anyone that's taking a philosophy course, try that out. And I think you'll you'll find that it's it's pretty helpful. Good, good, solid tips. Anyone taking philosophy, please, please use that. Let us know how it goes. I want to get into the work that you've shared with me that I've mm-hmm. taken some notes on, but Sweet. you might want to explain to the listeners of this pod what the work is, why you decided yeah. to bring it up, and why do you feel like it's important for all of us to just learn from it? Definitely. The book that I recommended for the pod is titled Interior Freedom. It's written by Jacques Philippe, who is a French priest. The reason that I thought it would be a great book was actually because I read it when I was going through a really anxious time. I was transitioning into my second year at UCLA. I was going to take on responsibilities as a TI president the upcoming year. So this was in the summer. I was on my way to a conference and I read this book right before, like on the plane right actually to the conference. And I I just felt like there were so many important nuggets in there about like just detachment and being able to understand like the value of being able to trust in our Lord. And then I felt like I was immediately tested. As soon as I got to the conference, I was super intimidated. I felt like I didn't belong there. Just so many intelligent people that were just so knowledgeable and like Thomism and everything like Aquinas and Catholic intellectual tradition. And I was like, ah, and then I read it again. And I was like, oh my, how quickly did I forget this? And I just began to reread it. And I found that it was just such a great help. I definitely feel like this is a book that you should not read only once because like you said, it takes a while to settle in. What are some of the things that you feel from this book that really spoke out to you then and what's what speaks out to you now? One of the biggest things is our concept of freedom. I think, um, you know, and Jacques Philippe goes into it near the beginning. He talks about like how we have this burning desire for freedom, I think as a society. But when we think of freedom, we think of like social freedom, cultural freedom, moral freedom, political freedom, all these things. Ultimately, Jacques Philippe goes on to say that, yeah, like as humans, we desire freedom so much, but we desire it because we desire happiness. You can't have happiness without love and no love without freedom. And so then the whole premise of the book is like, okay, well, where, where do we get, like, where does freedom come from? And he goes on to say, like, 
one of the biggest mistakes that we make about freedom is that we make it into something external when in reality it's not dependent on circumstances it's something that comes from within and ultimately that from within is our trust and love faith hope and love in our lord jesus christ once we begin to learn what that is and understand it a little bit better we have a, a much more fulfilling sense of freedom and Freedom takes on a different sort of role and like it's in a different context now. You pointed out this paradox by saying like this is kind of like a paradox of like human life. Mm -hmm. One cannot be truly free unless one accepts not always being free, which Mm -hmm. I guess to us, if we have to understand what our concept of freedom is, we have to understand of what is like the freedom that we that we truly need. I love what he said earlier about how this freedom that is the true freedom, it gives value to love. And love is like the precondition of like happiness, right? Mm-hmm. But the love that we sometimes have could sometimes be wrong, right? Right. Because we can love ourselves selfishly. Right. And this selfish kind of love that we have, it doesn't allow us to have happiness. It doesn't allow us to have this genuine sense of love that we truly mm-hmm. need. It's really powerful. And then he preceded all of that by with St. Catherine of Siena saying how man cannot live without loving yeah. So that's like really, really profound that we do need love. We can't have love without understanding what is the freedom that we need. Yeah. And like, as you were saying, our, our human love is going to fail. I mean, without, without question, like we're, we're limited and it's only God that can give us that love that truly fills us up and can inspire us to love more Christ-like, right? That's the kind of love that sets us on fire. I, I think St. Anselm, talks about, you know, in freedom, he mentions one thing. He says that freedom is not measured by like the range of choices. It's freedom is the ability to do what you ought to do or what is good for you, right? And so if it is good to worship our Lord, to, you know, to, to pray, to go to mass and go to the sacraments, then freedom is found in doing that. And if anything, to not be free is in a certain sense, right? Like to have, let's say you have a choice to go to like a Buddhist service or like a service of many other religions, right? You have so many choices like, ah, religious freedom. Yes. I think he would say, well, no, you see, if you want true happiness and love and true human fulfillment, you'll find that in our Lord Jesus Christ, which can only be found in its deepest sense through the Eucharist celebrating the mass. And so now you're like, ah, you know what? This is look in philosophy, right? Distinction. This is a case where options don't equal freedom. So you're like, oh, okay. So now you're like, this is the argument, right? So religious freedom, having a lot of options, isn't the kind of freedom we seek. So then where else do we look for freedom? Now we're like, okay, we consider the option of like, well, is this what we ought to do? Right. And then you go and pursue that. Like, okay, is that, is that really true? But that's a distinction, right? So many will think like options is, is true freedom, but it's really, it's really not. That's true. I like to think of it as if you're into NBA and you want to be a hall of fame player, Unless you're Allen Iverson, you always value practice. You always value yeah. just grinding, right? I mean, the greats do it all the time. MJ, Kobe. Kobe was notorious for just putting shots up all the time, right? Mm. He had the freedom to do anything else besides right. besides like putting the shots up at 3 a.m., 4 exactly. a.m. But he dedicated himself to the craft because he said, this is the way that I'm going to get better. This is how I'm going to cement my legacy. This is how I'm going to be the best basketball player that I can possibly be free, right? He could have he could have done other things. You're right. Yeah. So, yeah, I like, that's that. the beauty, I like that. That's the beautiful thing about Kobe's legacy is, you know, and earlier he I heard this this statement he was making. He was like, "Yeah, we're all given a box, right?" And he said, "Your only obligation in life is to dance as best as you can within your box." 
and your box is symbolic for like all the gifts and talents and everything you've been given. And he says, you know, we're all given different ta gifts and talents or all our boxes are different. We're not, we're not here to compare our boxes, but within our boxes, what can we do to get better every day? And you know, in a certain sense, that's the pursuit of excellence. And in the Catholic faith, you can interpret that as a pursuit of sainthood, really. And the beauty about like, his, like you see with him, right? He committed to basketball as his end goal, right? You set an end. And then now the means to that becomes very clear. Let's say you want to be an athlete, right? I just want to be a professional athlete, baseball, football, soccer, whatever. Think about all the different things you have to train in, right? You have to work on footwork and dribbling skills. You have to hand-eye coordination to catch the ball in baseball, right? Let's say you're a catcher and the ball's going at 95 miles an hour. You got to be able to be really talented. I mean, you get my drift. When you choose one sport, now all of a sudden you can focus better. That's the beauty of commitment too, because I think we have an issue with commitment in today's society. Oh, yeah. And the beauty of commitment is when you say no to one thing, you're actually saying yes to another. So I think let's not forget that, right? Like we're never mm -hmm. saying no strictly. We're saying yes to something good, something that we're choosing. Pursue the path of sainthood, right? And like you, you identify like, hey, this is what I can do to grow in my Catholic faith. And you set an end, the means becomes so much more clear instead of having like, oh my gosh, like I don't know how to live this life. I think one of the things that was said in the book that kind of highlights this is that we can't try to have freedom away from reality because freedom yeah. away from reality, that's kind of not great because if we try to do, do things out of that. We're actually promoting bad ideology. We're actually not trying to become free. We're becoming less free, right? Mm -hmm. Because in order to accept freedom, we have to accept that there are circumstances that are probably way beyond our control but that's okay that's honestly okay right yeah there's a sort of surrendering that you have to have in order to get freedom if you can talk about that and enlighten us more about that yeah definitely so i mentioned earlier or i alluded to him the protestant theologian paul tillich he has this two concepts freedom and destiny and he says these two exist in ontological polarity and interdependence so what he means by that is that they're dependent upon each other and you can think of destiny not as like, oh, this is your destiny to end up here, like deterministic kind of way, but destiny is sort of like the structure of your freedom. So like as a human being, you, you are born into a family. You are born in a specific city, in a specific state, in a country with certain genes, things that you did not choose, right? You can't have freedom without that because if not, there's no choices from which to make or no nothing to work with. Like if I don't have genes, like I don't have anything to work with you know i'm just like I'm a, I'm a robot in a certain sense right like you can have you can build a robot to do certain things but like to the extent that they can do like a lot of human activities i mean they can't because they don't have all this context and structure that we have to act in, in human ways so yes there's that and so once you learn to accept that the beauty of accepting reality is that i mean think about the transcendentals truth good and goodness and beauty. Truth is one of those essential transcendentals. And when we're choosing to not accept reality, we're rejecting a certain aspect of that transcendent realm, you know? Right. What goes into accepting reality as well is, is trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord that he is good and that he will make great every situation, right? So there's Romans 8.28, which says like, all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so every circumstance really is an opportunity for God to work if we can trust in him trusting as jock philippe says is an act of love and so when we act in love and we allow god to work in us he can reciprocate right because god mm -hmm. wants us to be free and so he can't just go to work you know we have to kind of open up our hearts let him till the soil of our hearts and and welcome 
you know, his grace and the Holy Spirit to move in us. I definitely love the three kind of attitudes or like the levels of attitudes that we have to have because I'm always in the pod and outside just preach like we have to do God's will, less of ourself, less of the ego, but more of like what God wants us to do. Yeah. Right. Because that's how, you know, you're on the the path of righteousness, the path of good. We Mm -hmm. must always strive to do good. And that is God's will. And so the three possible attitudes that they said was rebellion, which like when we do not accept of who we are, like you said, like we we reject the very human sides of ourselves. We reject the qualities that we are. Rebellion could also be rejecting an unacceptable situation. The second attitude that is kind of an upgrade, uh, upgrade's the wrong word, but anyways, (laughs) the second level would be- Step up for sure. Yes, a step up. Yeah. It would be resignation. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, the book says how it's a certain degree of progress beyond rebellion, but mm-hmm. it's definitely not a Christian va- virtue because there's no sense of hope, right? right? Resignation means like, I'm really powerless. I can't do anything. I can't do anything in this situation. The situation is what it is. Yeah. And what can I do with it? So right. we want to reach the third level, the next step, which is consent, right? And though the objectives are pretty much the same, it's with a whole different attitude um, that's right. within you. It speaks to like, the virtues of faith, hope, and love, and especially right. that faith in God. There is hope now more so than anything, right? So, mm-hmm. And I think that that's when, when you go to that level, that third level of consent, I think that's when you can try to truly understand God's will. I, know, I love right. how later on they mentioned how if you do God's will, you will probably receive clarity, but it is very hard to hear it. Because there are two things that take you away from hearing God's will. One is God gives us free will. He doesn't want to baby us. He mm-hmm. he's like the mama bird, you know, pushes the kids out of the out of the nest, let them Gotta fly, fly on their own. Yeah. Gotta fly. You have to fly. I mean that's beautiful. And then I think the second step was like purification. Is it alluding to like the holder than thou attitude of if we always know God's will, then it's like, ah, you know what? I might be might be better than yeah. God or it's like I'm at you have like the risk of like the spiritual pride right. That you have, right right it's it's kind of avoiding a Pelagian sort of attitude or being presumptuous and thinking hey you know I'm getting really good at this discerning God's will thing in a certain sense it can lead you to 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 think like hey like I'm doing this on my own I kind of don't need the mediator anymore before I'd be like okay God give me the grace show me show me your will and I'll follow your path and then it becomes well, my it's more of my will than God's will, I think, in the case of spiritual pride. It's toxic because I know that for me, definitely, I'm such a prideful person. <laughs> yeah, I always same. feel that, again, it's like I am the pilot of my own airplane. I am the pilot of my 767, I don't know, Boeing, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know planes, but yeah. I want to stay on my own course. I want to be the right. reason why I am doing so well. But in reality, that's that's not true. It's by the grace of right. God. It's by what it's, what God has given me. And it's also through the people that have supported me that I'm able to right. do well. Yeah. And you know, God is so good because going back to what Jack Philippe said earlier, freedom exists within, right? And I think that sometimes when we discern in God's will and the correct path, there's all these external things that we do and we achieve, right? And we begin to identify ourselves with them or place our identity in those things. And so suddenly what happens is when I'm no longer a UCLA student, when I'm no longer the president of TI, when I no longer have this specific job that gave my life meaning and purpose, or when I lose a friend, right, that was so pivotal in, in my own life, I suddenly now feel like, hey, I lost something. You can kind of develop like a kind of anxiety about that. And you know, God is there to remind you like, hey, true freedom exists because like, I love you and I'm 
gonna will your good. And even in those circumstances, I need you to place your trust in me and hope that because of my loving nature, I'm gonna create a better situation for you out of this. That's the difference between like we're saying resignation and and consent is saying like, hey God, I trust you. And that's why that's precisely why I think the litany of trust was was a prayer for today because and it was so providential because yeah, like that's what it takes that trust and even the scripture, right? Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake. You can interpret that as like, well, to do the will of the Lord, you're gonna have to lose some of these external things, but you will gain so much more if you can accept the Lord's will because he will work for your good in that. And it's amazing, because right, like that's what it is to take up your cross. These things that happen, these negative things that we don't ask for and we don't have any control over are a threat to our sovereignty our autonomy, right? And we're like, hey, 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 no, I'm in charge of my life. That's that's the first thing that we go to, I think, when something happens that's out of our control, and we immediately forget that, you know, no, like, God is ultimately in control of my life. And so long as I still have him, I have my anchor. So that's what helped me a lot, man, because I was very anxious um, during that time when I was gonna transition, and I felt very insecure. And I think once I was able to transition from, like, the resignation to consent, I, I found, it's so much easier for me and it helped me to be more humble because I realized how little I am. Like from the dust we're made into the dust we shall return. I'm like, yeah, like truly I am dust, but the Lord gives his free gift of love to me, to me and he gives me, my life so much meaning and value and dignity that I shouldn't fear losing a position, not getting that, that internship, you know, or not having a smooth transition right out of college into my career and adult life, you know, because the Lord's going to work and he's going to create a better situation for me. So the trust. It's about that, the childlikeness that um, mm -hmm. you, you have, it's like that childlike trust in God right. that we all should strive to have because I feel that we are all worry warts. <laughs> I feel that there are so many things to worry about and it is so hard to take up the cross. It is so hard to give everything up. I'm always reminded by, I believe the priest was Nicodemus. I could be wrong. I could mm -hmm. be wrong. Um, please correct me if I am. Comes in the okay. middle of night to Jesus saying like, uh, Rabbi, what was I going to do to get to heaven? And then Jesus basically asked, well, you have to do this and this. Have you done that? And he said, yes, I have. Have you done this and that? And then, yes, I have. And he's like, well, sell all of your possessions and right. then come and follow me. You mm -hmm. literally cannot do that, right? It's so right. hard because there are so many things that we as humans value. Maybe those are the things that make us not want to take that next step towards consent, right? Because we yeah. hold our yes. hope yes. in worldly possessions. We hold right. our hope into the things that we hold value to. And it's hard to say that it's okay to hold value in that because God is the priority. God is the right. one that we should trust. But we always, we yeah. always hold value to something that right. takes us away from God. And I think like, what does that mean, right? What does it mean to have a desire for a worldly thing, a good worldly thing, say like, let's say I wanna have this position of TI president because I know it can bring the Catholic truth to university students, but God were to say, hey, you know what? That's not my will. Like, what do I do? Do I just like, again, I could enter into resignation. I could re rebel and say, hey, you know what, God, I don't like this. I could resign. And I think this is where a lot of people get, I think get stuck. I, I know I do, I can only really speak for myself where I would get stuck constantly is in the state of resignation where it's like, well, God, if you're gonna do your will anyway, you know, why should I ask you for things, right? Like, why should I pour my heart out saying, this is what I truly desire, God, please let it be so, if it might not happen. 
And I think, well, for one, first of all, who's, who's to say the Lord in his goodness won't give you that, but it's just not the time yet, right? And then, and then also, who's to say that the Lord isn't going to give you something better, you know? And so I think the hard thing to do is to really put ourselves out there and ask, like, for me, I have to say for myself, the hard thing for me to do is to put myself out there and say, hey, Lord, I really desire to be TI president this year, right? And like the humility it takes to be able to say, but let it be your will, not mine. And to mean that, I think that's the hard thing. And I feel like I wasn't really taught that growing up. And I think that that's one of the things that this book was like really crucial for me in was helping me to get from how to like, not just like resign. Oh, well, God doesn't want this for me. And then just, cause you know, after a while, I feel like that creates resentment, right? You're like, well, God's just going to do what he wants anyway. And it could kind of deter you from prayer. And that's like exactly what you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to keep praying and discerning with, with the Lord. So, you know, that's when you're kind of in your head a little bit and you're like, oh, snap. Like, I need to snap out of this. So, yeah, that's the big thing for me. I think it's getting from that point of resignation to, to consent. And ultimately, yeah, it comes back to like trusting the Lord, which is really hard to do sometimes, but it pays off. Yeah. I mean, one of the people I aspired to be was St. Thomas More. I'm not sure if you know who he is. I'm aware of him. Don't know much about him, though, truthfully. There's a play it's called A Man for All Seasons, and it's based on the life of St. Thomas More. I believe Thomas More was like a chancellor, or he was like a really high-ranking official mm-hmm. in England during the time of one of the King Henrys. And yeah. he was a good man. He was a good politician. He was really, really powerful. When it came time for him to present judgment uh, on something that he thought was wrong, he had two options. He could either basically do what the king told him to do, or you can basically do what is right by the Lord. And he prayed a lot. He was good Catholic. Mm-hmm. He, he prayed a lot. And he basically said, no, I'm not going to do what the king said. I'm going to stand for what is right. And he got killed for that. He got killed yeah. for that. He had a really great speech about, you know, you have to do what is morally right, what is right for all people, right? And mm-hmm. that's why he's the man for all seasons. He is truly just in the way that he does things. He was truly yeah. just in the way that he served the people. He didn't serve mm-hmm. the king. He didn't serve for the money. He didn't serve for the prestige. He served it because that mm-hmm. was right. It was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard, I believe, when you're in a position of power like that. Yeah. Even if you are, let's say, like a club president, it's so hard even even then always wanting to do what's right because your ego can get in the way or other influences could get in the way. So I always pray to be yeah. St. Thomas More, just doing the mm. right things. And if I'm ever placed in a position where I do have privilege or power to yeah. always do what is right. right. And that is doing God's will. That's perfect. It ties back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, the reasons why God sometimes, you know, I guess maybe hides his, his will from us a little bit, you know, allowing us to be adults, right? So the beauty in that is that, like, yeah, we have to, like, honestly ask ourselves, like, what what do I want? And then to just trust that, like, hey, even if we mess up or make a mistake, God can work in that too. And I mean, the, the crazy thing is, like, you see... Jesus, right, when he was in Gethsemane, he asked the Lord, like, if it's your will, like, may this cup pass, you know? So he didn't want to have to suffer if he, if it wasn't, like, God's will. And so we, we can see there, like, it's okay to, like, ask for what you want. And our God is good and he'll, he'll listen. 
but there's going to be occasions where like, hey, maybe it's something else. You bring up a beautiful point because I always feel like people forget how human <laughs> Jesus was. I mean, he, he didn't want to suffer. Let's be honest. Like he, he, like all of us, would prefer not to feel pain, right? Right. But he knew that that was what's to be done. Right. He, he knew that this is the way to get it done. This is God's will. And right. so he took his cross literally. Literally, quite literally, yeah. Quite literally. And so, yeah, I think that that, no, that was a, I just wanted to say that was a beautiful point that you. Yeah. And that's, that's a prime example because I mean, Christ consented, you know, he didn't just rebel. He didn't just resign. I think a lot of us would have resigned. Um, Oh yeah, I would have probably. He consented and look at the good that came out of it. I mean, is that not evidence that like Romans 8.28 is like true? I mean, he went and bought the freedom of the world. He lost his life so that we can gain ours you know and how many opportunities do we have daily to in a sense take up our cross you know lose our lives in a certain sense but then gain so much more and i think when you see that and you see evidence of the cross you're like oh my like you know what lord i'm gonna trust i'm gonna i'm gonna just like jesus did i'm gonna tell you like hey like may this cut pass but shall it not be your will may you give me the grace and the strength to take it up willingly and trusting that there's going to be a Simon, you know, along the way to help you carry it. And the Simon may be your community. It may be, it may be just a random stranger who on like the, one of your lowest days gives you a smile and just fills you up. Like you don't know, like the Lord manifests himself in so many different ways. And I think when we can condition ourselves to begin to see that and to be grateful for all the little things, you begin to like truly see as, as the Lord sees with eyes of faith, hopefully that helps on the path to sainthood, you know? That is very true. The path of saint, the path to sainthood is the path that we should all strive towards. It's a difficult path, but I mean, this world needs more saints. What do you feel like are like the final takeaways that you wanted to give for this book? I, there's, there's so much, and I would recommend again to all the listeners to the pod, please, please, please read this book. But I guess for the sake of time, Um, What are some final takeaways that you feel like this book has given you? So it gave me a deeper understanding of of faith, hope, and love. You can learn about them in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Theological Virtues. We actually pray three Hail Marys in in a rosary for an increase in faith, hope, and charity. So Mary's hooking it up there too. But um, I think the main thing is this book really helps you to begin to understand like that freedom truly does come from within and from this disposition that you have towards trusting our Lord and being able to courageously assert like, you know, your desires and prayers, but to be able to resign and then ultimately consent and trust the Lord and work as best as you can to become more Christ-like and to become saint-like and know that the Lord is in his goodness will, will respond. And I think if, you're looking for a book that can help you a little bit about to deal with some of these even insecurities and accepting yourselves because we didn't even talk about that portion of the book but there's a whole portion on how to accept yourself and the circumstances that you find yourself in and accepting others too like when someone like annoys you and like you're like ah like how do i deal with this and react in a loving way in a faithful way in a hopeful way that the, the relationship can be in some sense restored or strengthened so totally recommend it if you're seeking to have like true interior interior freedom. 10 out of 10. Sure. And I think that this is probably a book that is a must read, especially during this time when a lot of people are experiencing some spiritual desolation, understanding that let's not let these circumstances 
be the reason why our our faith suffers that you know we can learn a lot of things that coming out of this situation we can learn about a lot of things about who are who we are let's not be in spiritual desolation let's not be in resignation yeah let's let's consent to god's will let's consent to the works of the lord so yes omar this has been a really really wonderful conversation oh my goodness brother thank you all the time you have such a wonderful wonderful mind and i'm so happy that you got to spend it with me i hope that i really still have a little bit yeah yeah thank you thank you i i hope that you still can catch the uh, the last remaining minutes of the lakers game i don't know the score right i think so i mean i think it typically ends at 8 30 i think i'll be able to catch it hopefully um but dude thank you again and thank you to your team for coordinating and setting this up again you guys have done a great job um i'm a big fan of the podcast and like just so happy that we could catch up man i mean it's been it's been a while i haven't seen you and it's great to just to see your face and i know i know i'm i we should totally catch up in in like other ways as well but honestly like thank you for just like doing this this is yeah this has been a, a wonderful wonderful time dude so yeah any last words that you'd like to say to the listeners of this pod anything that you'd like to say well rest in peace kobe mama mentality forever um, no, I just hope that all y'all uh, find yourselves well. Know of my prayers for you. And I would just say, yeah, keep trying to practice to trust in our Lord and um, know that he will, he will guide your steps. And yeah, just my prayers and my, all my love is with y'all. And thanks again, Jason. Of course, of course, of course. Rest in peace, Kobe, 824. All right, we will end like we always do in our closing prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come Holy Spirit. Teach us how to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you have given us throughout our lives. We thank you for the gifts of conversation, of knowledge, of wisdom, and of fellowship that you have given to us at the UCC community. We ask that you bless us in all the days of our lives and bring peace to our homes and communities. Lord, I ask that you continue to help us grow in our knowledge and to cultivate a spirit of learning until we are received in your heavenly embrace. Help us to search for understanding and for truth. May we continue to be scholars in all aspects of our lives, and may we always perform actions that are in accordance with your will. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The music used in this episode. First Day of Spring by David Hillowitz. License under Creative Commons. And Storybook by Scott Holmes. License under Creative Commons. A producer for this episode is me, Jason Maljani. Special thanks to our guest, Omar Castillo, and to the UCC podcast team, Chloe Alves, Dylan Girardi, Joshua Herring, and Isabella Richards. I couldn't have done this without you all. Thanks for listening. <laughs>